HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Why is Heritage Radio Network important to you? HRN is very nostalgic to go into because it's really the only place that you have this really warm, homey experience to watch people get together and talk about the things that really make a difference. It's really fun when I ask guests, do you want to be on Heritage? And they're like, Roberta's, yes, 100%. I believe that we all are really trying to bring people together. I think getting more people excited about good, local, well-crafted food and away from big ag and tasteless commodity food is so important. It's kind of an honor to be sitting there with somebody in a space where so many other people have sat. Join HRN's vibrant community of thoughtful eaters. Become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world. About a million listens a month. And today I'm really hoping that they're all listening to this very auspicious episode of Tech Bytes. This is the last episode of 2019. Today is December 17th, 2019. It is also the last episode of Tech Bytes of the decade. And as we do traditionally, we are going to look ahead to the next year and the next decade. And looking ahead to the next year is good. Looking ahead to the next decade requires a little bit more heavy lifting. So we brought back one of our favorite, favorite guests, who is a little bit of a food oracle, I think, because she has been embedded and reporting on food for two decades, going into decade three. Maybe we're going into decade three now. Very, very much Mm -hmm. an expert. Kate Crater, food editor of Bloomberg Pursuits. This is auspicious for me because Tech Bites is one of my favorite podcasts, so I feel very excited right now. You were on in the first year, which was 2015. We went on the air in January of 2015. My easy big prediction for next year is we're going to hit episode 200. Woo! Probably Woo! sometime in February, I think. I think, is... I think you're probably right. <laughs> Thank you. That is the voice of Mission Control. That is Matt, our studio, engi- our studio manager and the engineer of Tech Bites. Matt, will you be here for episode 200? I think that will also be true. <laughs> I love I'm, dealing in uncertainties. Yes, we, need, we should have brought the magic eight ball. Yeah. Oh, that would have been a good one. Anyway, it's important to, 
you know, I, I think when you look ahead, you need to have some history of what works and what doesn't. And Kate has a really great, uh, not just finger on the pulse of what's happening nationally and internationally, but she's seen a lot of the trends come and go. And the food world and the tech world is very cyclical, just like everything else, just like fashion. We see trends with maybe a little bit of a tweak and they go through. So she's a great, great person to have to talk about this. And I would love to start with your year-end review, one of your year-end articles, and see how far that's going to push into the next year. Your year-end was Washington is the most exciting food city in America, and that's Washington, D.C. It is Washington, D.C. So that's right now. Right this moment. Is that going to last for the next two weeks and carry into 2020? I think I would safely bet on that. I, I mean, I think I'm a native New Yorker, and I am. I will root for New York every day of the week. Um, and certainly, as you know, L.A. has been getting so much heat. I mean, like, every day it's crazy. It's like they're People giving, from New York are moving to L.A. Oh, my God. That's how exciting it it's is. It's like they're giving away those fried chicken sandwiches on a daily basis. Um, so I, I see you, L.A., but I feel like Washington, D.C., for so many reasons, has it going on. And it's not just the food. I mean, the food's very good. I do think I do think if we're talking purely, like, if you go, like, head-to-head on the quality of food, I think New York wins. But just in terms of everything that D.C. has going on from the activist chef hotbed, there's a new place called Immigrant Food that opened up a block away from the White House that is setting up as a meeting place for NGOs when they're not there. And then, of course, like Jose Andreas is saving the world almost single-handedly. And it's also been just this fantastic, it's a place for fast casual concepts especially. It's a great incubator. So Sweet Green, little company called Sweet Green got, um, got its start there, and a bunch of others, Kava and Pizza. And it's because it's got a remarkably high rate of highly educated um, highly educated people who earn a lot of money. Because <laughs> I work at Bloomberg, I can tell you, like five of the top earning neighborhoods are situated around the DMV. And so it means that there's a lot of people who are working who are interested in stories and want to hear, like, what's going on, want to experience it. You know, here in New York, that everybody has a minute to go check out something new. And in D.C., they will do it. In life, over the past few years, the political climate has... (laughs) And it doesn't matter what side of the coin you're on, Mm -hmm. you know, how you look at it, but the political climate and the news has been a huge catalyst for people becoming emotional and excited and wanting to get involved in things socially. People are involved, they're volunteering, they're protesting, they're supporting different things, they're creating groups, they're coming together, there's a lot of community organization. What you're talking about in D.C. is that the culinary version of that, do you think? Yeah, there's certainly, I mean, I'm sure it's got a lot to do with the fact that the most polarizing person in the whole world is (laughs) lives in Washington, D.C. right now, and people are right there and want to um, want to act out against him. And I think also maybe we, I mean, everybody hears the news everywhere now, but right there you really see it, and it's a city of immigrants. You know, they have like, a, what is it, like 170 different, different ethnic um, groups and races there populating and serving delicious food. And so people, I, I think people can relate to it in a way that you can't always relate to it. Mind you, like in Queens, Queens is fantastic. 
Um, and L.A. has terrific ethnic food, and so does Houston. So you can interact. It's not like D.C. is the only place, but it's more immediate in D.C. It's not that big of a city, so it's easy to get around. And, again, I can't say how much I think, how much it seems like D.C. is open-minded and ready to experience things, And whereas in L.A. it's too far. In New York we don't have any time. There's a bunch of things. In Houston you have to get in your car. There's, like, a million reasons why. Chicago, it's too cold to Chicago, go outside. Chicago, it's too cold to go outside. <laughs> yep. At least right now. So you have it as the, the last, one of your last stories of the year saying it is the, the restaurant food city of the moment. How long does something like that sustain itself? Does it now, I mean, because you're also usually an early, early predictor. And in mm -hmm. some ways, it's an interesting question. Are you an early predictor? Or are you so good at it that you can make predictions come true also? Oh, Jen, <laughs> keep talking. How long does Washington stay on top? Do they stay on top through the end of the year? Is there a shift? Is it that energy still building? Four more years. Four <laughs> more years. Stop it right now. That of voice Heritage I'm Radio. <laughs> of Heritage Radio and of Tech, Tech Bytes, Bytes, right? Natch. Um, well, I think, you know, by its nature, when you make this kind of call, you can't come back and say, like, Washington, D.C. is still the top food city. It's my job to say, like, Indianapolis is the new food right. city. Like, you, so I, if I'm lucky enough to be sitting here next year, I doubt, I will be saying Washington, D.C. in terms of pr predictions, but I will say, you know, everything that's made D.C. such a strong food city right now is going to stay in play, whereas New York... Um, there's no sign. I mean, like, what's fighting against New York is is just the crazy high expenses all around. Real estate. Real estate's crazy, but also minimum wage, doing business. You get, there's so much red tape here. Try to, like, talk to any chef about getting Con Ed to, <laughs> to do something. <laughs> like, just the cost and the headaches and the work of doing business in New York is much harder than it is almost anywhere else. So, you know, like, L.A. really is rising up. So many talented chefs are going there, but the trend—a trend that um, that I really believe in—that's that's now that's going through to 2020 is autobiographical chefs, and that's chefs because being authentic has become such a hot issue. You know, you have to be so tricky to you have to be so careful to say like my food's authentic and what does that even mean you know authentic if to what authentic to where you know mm -hmm. like if if you're from guatemala and you come here and cook and you're not using ingredients from guatemala is your food authentic and is it from when your... to when you know guatemala in what decade right like, like the, well things change a lot 500 percent. you know so i think if you shift away from even trying to hold on to that like red hot sword that people are people are trying to like use and instead your food's autobiographical then you're sort authentic of authentic to you authentic to you and, and so you. you can call out some fantastic Benihana sauce you know that you grew up with or you can show tail in a pocket <laughs> <laughs> that will be part when you do your restaurant Jen there you go but I think you know I think it's telling your own story and then and then you are doing the food that you know you're acclimating it in the way that you believe in through all these different, all, you know. Do you, do you think that the combination of, um, you know, cultural appropriation is one thing that we're very sensitive about right now and attuned to? Instagram and social media has also really given rise to 
looking at and appreciating the value of the individual, mm -hmm. the individual person's point of view, the influencer, what I'm doing right now. Is it now time for that very personal point of view where, you know, that's what people are looking for, which sets you apart versus just I'm doing Oaxacan cuisine or I'm doing French cooking or Tuscan cooking? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, Instagram's tricky because is there, it's such a fake version of you or it's, it's almost always, it, it's... What? What? Instagram <laughs> is fake? No, it's such a, I mean, it's not untrustworthy. Photoshop? Why don't we say it's an untrust? Best untrustworthy version of, you know, whoever's behind the account. So I think that, yeah, cultural appropriation is, is such a, such an issue right now. And so if you just say, this is my food and this is what I'm proudly cooking because I'm vegan, because I grew up in a food court, because, you know, my parent, my father came from Jamaica and my mother came from Ireland and this is what I cook now. Like it's really... It's exciting. I'll, although I will say this in the in the theme of like sitting here in a year and saying what we're excited about, I also feel like it's a trend that can go overboard and be badly used very quickly. <laughs> and Is I there can... <laughs> any trend that doesn't run the risk of going overboard and being badly used? Well, I mean, that's called jumping the shark, isn't like, it? Well, Essentially, like fashion, I would call it the classics. Like find a good, find me a good classic French bistro, and that should that's forever, right? True. True. That's not a. Is that a trend or is that? Well, it seems like a trend now because French food had gone away, like it had been totally subsumed by Italian trattorias, right? And then like Frenchette, look, cuckoo Frenchette, a couple places now pastis came back, and now we can be like, yay, French food. But I think I think it does sometimes sort of quietly. It's so classy, it quietly sits where it is and lets other cuisines shout, and then you see it again. It's always there. It's always there. It's always there. It's nice. It has been for hundreds of years. Truth. <laughs> so what do you what types of things do you see that are maybe building now that are maybe headlines or popping up or top of mind, but they're not really a full blown trend or they're not a trend that's fully articulated to become just like a part of day to day life or a part of the consideration? Something that's gonna build now, next year, next couple years? Um, well, you know, this is this is something that I think is interesting that I would love to discuss with you because you are uniquely situated to talk about it. But I wonder if there is going to be a rise in analog. Like everything, when you make reservations now, it's so highly automated. It's almost impossible to make a reservation that doesn't involve a lot of, you know, maybe not a lot, but how like how often do you make a reservation that's not on your phone or that's not on a computer and I think some places are going to catch up because there's such a there's such a need for personalization or there's such a there's such there's such a desire for personalization now and so you can't have like you can't just have a stupid Instagram account that that features some like crazy cake you have to tell a story about it you know like if you have like rainbow bagel shame on you you have to be like this is why this is important to me and likewise I think personalization has become important to chefs like whether they write a note whether they know it's your anniversary and they write you a note or whatever it is and I think in that way as even as some companies like Resi and Open Table strive to make it a personalized experience it's other companies are catching up to them. And if everywhere you go, you're like faced with some kind of a kiosk thing that ostensibly personalizes for you, where do you go from there, but back to analog? 
I do think analog 100%. Interestingly, just as a side note, personalization is one of the trends that the food tech community is looking at, and it's like personalization of your vitamins or your things and that kind of stuff. Um, we had a guest on earlier this year who talked about uh, the co meshing together the combination of personal information from data devices that you wear and then combining that into something that would then tell you what to eat or make food for you or, you know, you're vitamin D deficient right now. You need to have some dairy and go out into the sun and, you know, you should, you need some, you know, you need some iron. So have that beat, add beets to your salad. So hyper personalization in that sense. I wonder if, because people are so used to and increasingly so the ease of technology for accessing and acquiring things, if the gateway into the restaurant or the food experience will remain automated and increasingly so, but when you cross the threshold into the place, then it becomes extremely analog. Well, it also depends on the experience that you're going for, right? Because mm -hmm. some places clearly are not going, <laughs> are like analog mm -hmm. is going to be prehistoric for them if it's not already. But I think, I think exactly as you say, there's a certain level of restaurant. It doesn't even have to be like the finest of fine dining. It doesn't have to be Cezanne in San Francisco or La Bernadette, you know, here in New York. But even on a level like kind of lower from that, maybe like Danny Meyer restaurants, for instance, like Union Square Cafe, whether that's going to be a place where, I mean, especially maybe Danny Meyer, who's, you know, king of hospitality, as they say, um, that's a place where you where you feel a personalization. Oh, like a human, human, human person. personalization. Yeah. Exactly. It's interesting in that years ago when... Was it Sambar when, when, when the first Momofuku restaurant started to open? They never took reservations. Everything was automated. You called the restaurant phone number. You got a recording. And it was you could never find a way to talk to a person. Did they even have a phone number? I feel like... I, no, I, you're I exactly right. I recall calling and then getting a loop. Like, you couldn't even call to ask how long the wait was. I mean, you know, famously... Famously, no, no people, no access, no way to get to a person. Does analog mean... Your first experience is a person where you could make a phone call and you could talk to a person or you walked up to a place and there was a person there to assist you? Wouldn't that be amazing if a Dave Chang Mamafuku restaurant was the one who answered the phone and was like, when would you like your um, bosom? Yes. Hello? Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Mamafuku land. Because, no, you're right. There are certainly, they, they weren't the very first, but they definitely like rang a lot of bells by being, by being, by, you had to book for Bosoms, et cetera, online. And even like Dave Chang's mom couldn't cut, you know, couldn't and get an co, in. And co, the way it was all. Yeah. And the system was built so they couldn't break into it. So right. they couldn't help people jump right. the line. Right. Well, there's a, tra you know, what you talked about earlier about the economics of restaurants being so extreme and high right now. There's a piece of the automation that makes it more economically viable because people are expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that's going away. But you asked me like to think about what my predictions were. And mine is, you know, if you look at concerts, mm. more people are trying to sequester your phones during concerts using Faraday cages or other things. I think I don't think that's hit restaurants yet. And I feel like there's maybe going to be this like counter movement where they're like, no, we're giving you this experience. You must. We will force you to put your phone away and only be here. 
I mean, restaurants flirt with that idea a lot, and a couple a couple places actually do it. But the the counter argument to that is that it is free advertising for them a lot of times. And so if someone comes in but and takes a picture and then posts it, and um, it acts in the same way that Jen was just saying that if you're saving money by not having too many people answering phones, you're likewise saving money on PR when you have when you have your customers out there being like, look at this pasta, blew my mind, whatever, you know. But being one of the only places that restricts that access also gets you the PR. It gets you some PR, but it's also a control issue. Like at some point, I mean, it, it depends on like how hard it is to grab a phone out of like your hot hand, you know, <laughs> like at some point if that Coat becomes check. like a hostile takeover, yeah. that's an issue. But it's, no, I think, I think there's something, it will be interesting to see what happens with Instagram in 2020 because certainly chefs are sick of the influencers and they, that, you know, there are people who have made a lot of demands on chefs like time, on restaurants, time they're, and attention. They're also challenged by the timing of service when people are, I mean, some people just take a picture. Some people are on their phone. Some people set up elaborate things and take pictures and the food hits the table. And I mean, we've read all the articles and heard mm-hmm. the stories about and the food right. gets cold and then they have to, you know, mm-hmm. or it's taking longer and it backs everything up. So there's also this extra extraneous time element in terms of the diner's experience that the kitchen and the restaurant and the servers have to manage with like the unpredictability of that, which, you know, one one complaint that I've heard about that is that that takes a, a restaurant's ability away to sort of provide the best dining experience because it's like stuttering and stopping and food is cold when people eat it because they spend so much time taking I- pictures. But I've heard some very intelligent people come through the studio who have, like, thought through their method of dealing with influencers, which seems to be grouping them, like, like herding them towards specific days and specific events and starting, like, I think that in the next decade, restaurants... So taking them out of the gen pop dining environment. Restaurants are going to stop getting led around by influencers and will start just like hurting them where they want them to be and and manipulating their environment more for them. And it's going to become less of a problem, I think, for them. They're going to get smarter about it, basically. I think I, I think that is seems like an answer that's like just sitting there in plain sight, right? You know, that you're like... Wednesday night from five to seven, Instagram special. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like and then, that makes a lot of at sense. At six oh five, no, no, no phones allowed. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be something that people would, people would certainly have an opinion about it. You'd certainly get a lot of play, and then there would be people who really liked it. It's the same way, you know, in an odd way, books have become more popular. People want paper. People like paper, and I do think that concerts and experiences are more popular. Because people want the experience, mm-hmm. the actual analog, real life thing, um, to go where the people are. Maybe is 2020 in the coming decade when chefs and restaurant people sort of like take back their restaurants and sort of run things more in a way that they want to, authentic to them, their cuisine, maybe putting a control on what type of technology is happening in their dining rooms. It's it's so much like it it's it sounds it sounds ridiculous but it blows my mind to think that that you know restaurants that like phones and like pictures and restaurants would 
become like relatively obsolete. Like it's it's really hard for me to see that situation. Interesting, but you would write about it if a restaurant did it. Um, I would write about it if a restaurant did it. <laughs> I would. I mean, the thing is, there's a lot. Like this is this is like not a conversation or a road we need to walk down now. But it's it's also a much more. It's it's very complicated dance now too because some of the people who are influencers are not, you know, food journalism has paid so much, is has disappeared so much, and there's so few, like, f- paying jobs in the food world that some people, it'll be interesting to see how that works given that, given how, how much the relationship between food writers and restaurants is changing on, like, a daily basis. Writing, also fundamental. Right. Maybe both at its peak and a dying art in some ways yeah, to no. get, be, get beyond a couple characters in a post on social media. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it'll be interesting. I do, um, like, Matt, that's, some, that's quite a cool thing to think about, you know, that, that like, there are certain that they get sequestered. They get sequestered. That sounds very <laughs> ominous. Oh, my gosh. Uh-oh. I mean, <laughs> not when you hear about how fucking annoying some of these influencers are to the chefs who are no trying doubt. to like, no, no, do no. their job. I yeah. am not representing for influencers right now. No, no, no. It's just it's it's just fascinating. Not a part of the 2020 platform. <laughs> but what is a part of the 2020 platform is Heritage Radio Network going into our second decade. We celebrated our 10th anniversary this year. We're hoping for another 10 more. And in order for us to do that, we need help from members and listeners like you. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. You listen to Heritage Radio Network because, let's face it, you have really good taste. You care about where your food comes from, who made it, and its impact on the planet. Whether you're looking for an inspiring interview with your favorite celebrity chef the latest on Dave Arnold's Spinzall, or if you want to get down and dirty with some agricultural policy, we've got you covered. 10 years in and 13,000 episodes later, HRN continues to be the go-to media outlet for thoughtful eaters like you. And we never could have done it without the support of our listeners. Help Food Radio continue in the future and help us raise enough funds for the year to come. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And since you've got such good taste, we have some very cool member gifts for you to choose from. Thanks for listening and for being a part of the HRN community. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today we have our last episode of the year of 2019. And we also have our last episode of the decade. Very big stuff. 
And I feel like we should be drinking champagne and have like party hats and poppers. I have a champagne bottle size of uh, Miller High Life here, the champagne of beers. Would you like that? Well, we are Roberta's Pizza. That's probably appropriate. <laughs> and I think you need. You also just need the sensation of popping, yeah, right? Exactly. If you hear the pop, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's, good that's the party sound. That's the party. Oh man, I should have the pop, like a, a champagne cork pop on the soundboard. You goals, should. Goals I feel like that will happen in 2020. Goals, resolutions, 2020 goals. sound effects, yeah. sound effects for tech bites. With us today to take a look forward at 2020 and the coming decade, we have Kate Crater, who is the food editor at Bloomberg Pursuits. If you want to follow her in real life, she is on Instagram. She has a great feed at Kate Crater. And if you want to follow Bloomberg Pursuits, that's at Bloomberg Pursuits. She has some really great year-end wrap-up stories. We were talking about D.C. being the food city of the moment, which will probably coast them through 2020. There's also, I mean, if you really want to have some FOMO about last year and try and, you know, check some boxes before you get to that New Year's Eve cocktail party, she also has a great dishes you should have eaten in 2019 and some spirits and things like that. So it's a good primer to get you informed about the big hits from last year. What do you have on tap that you can share with us for 2020? What do you what are some of your stories that you're chomping at the bit to get out um, of the gate? That is a great question. One of them there's there's a couple things that I'm excited about. One thing that um, Bloomberg is doing is launching a new green platform. So look out for more um, stories about eco-minded businesses and food um, and food and the people behind them and we want to get like beyond the straw like we don't just want to talk about a, you know a straw how a straw Plant can save the world that story burgers. has been told but yeah no I feel everything. like if we're talking about 2020 it's the moment we have to talk about plant based everything plant based everything and like where that's going and what's happening so um, so we picked Ethan Brown who is the head of who um, started Beyond Meat. Um, and he is, I've, I'm fascinated by the idea of what is the holy grail for him. Like burgers, burgers was clearly the, you know, was is clearly sitting on top of the pedestal of what it would be great, what needed to be introduced to get people off of meat. But I heard a rumor that um, dumpling filling was actually a kind of mission statement for some people because then... You can blanket the world. You can blanket the world. Um, but I think one thing that they're going hard on um, is poultry. So The nugget. The nugget. And the fried chicken and the chicken yeah. sandwich. Exactly and the tenders. Right. And the tenders, all of it. I so, think what they really should be targeting is plant-based CBD. It's going to so, be huge. <laughs> oh, my God. What a genius thing. That's something we we just had to do a thing. It's going to come out. Um, it's going to come out in a couple of days about the trends, trends we loved and trends we hated. Uh-huh. And I was like, can someone? You know what? I understand the joy of CBD. I understand that it brings like happiness and relief to people and pets and everyone around the world. But I just don't want to see any more like <laughs> CBD raw cookie dough bites. Like, stop it. Just stop it's almost it. like the pumpkin spice exactly. of wellness. You know, oh my God. it's like Jen, uh, right, precisely. right in October in the rampant mm-hmm. to Halloween and Thanksgiving. I love to shop at Trader Joe. It's so fun. Mm-hmm. 
I walked into the store one day and literally everything was pumpkin spice. Pumpkin spice coffee, soap. They had a pumpkin spice sheet mask for your face, which just to me is just overboard. Stop it. Stop it right now. CBD is like the pumpkin spice thing, except it's not going to go away because it's seasonal. It's not seasonal. It's not (laughs) seasonal. (laughs) Because, you know, the season of stress is just all the time. I mean, I don't want it to disappear. I just want people to use it wisely. You know what I mean? just have it take a place on the shelf along with the other functional beverages? Like CBD popcorn, I'll allow it. You know, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot that I'm good with, but I feel like there's some lines that have to be drawn. I would be happy if I just didn't have to hear about it as much. Uh-huh. Well, that's exactly the truth as well. So what are some of the trends that you're hoping are going to disappear? Because it's always fun to talk about those. Um, I will be happy. I think there's been, in contrast to the fake meat um, thing, there is way too much of those, like Fred Flintstone size beef meat situations, you know, like tomahawk chopped the times giant five. 72, 72 ounce or 96 ounce for two people. Yeah. And this is a thing now? Today. Yes. 2019. Matt, Matt's a vegetarian, so he's not hip to the just steakhouse offering. Just didn't even know. Yes. It's well, like three you know, market price, $230, 96 ounce ribeye for two. Yeah, exactly. Carved table side. Carved table side. I can't like, I, I know where it's coming from because entrees are sort of an endangered species now because everybody has like, everyone does small plates and then everyone wants to do family style because it's fun and convivial. Except the French bistro. Except the French bistro. Entree, where entrees entrees. live. They live forever. Forever, ever. But, you know, I understand exactly where these big things of meat are coming from, but they're disgusting. You know, they're disgusting. They're hard to cook. Um, I think people need to, chefs need to be smart about 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 um, serving them. Is there anything from the far corners of your travels? And I mean, you just, you were in Europe, you're in DC, you're all over. Do you see any small little nuggets of things that are happening that you think might be growing? I mean, it might take a year or two. Anything that really piqued your curiosity? Um, you know, I was just in, I just, well, DC, DC really captured my imagination as, as I wrote about. Um, and I like their, it just, the accessibility thing. I, I go back to the autobiographical chef thing and like feeling like a chef is telling you a story when they're cooking, you know, or through their food, which I think is great. Like at this um, really good place called Emily's, they, um, the chef that is, what is it, yum yum sauce from Benihana. He proudly has yum yum sauce on his menu, but he also makes like cachoe pepe with miso. And that's smart. You know, that's really, really smart. So I appreciate that. I appreciate someone who will put like a Swiss cheese on a pizza because they grew up eating fondue and then they were like, let's let's try this. Let's see what happens. So I feel um, those are some of the things I'm seeing. I also just came back from Amsterdam and that food scene was um, was very simple. They didn't, it wasn't like food with too many accents. And that's something I would love to see more of here. I think, I think it's not like, it's not quite as crazy town as, as it was in the heyday of like, help me with what cuisine had like so many, had like millions Time. of flourishing dashes. No, it's not, it's not, it's not so many, it's not like that. It's more like gratuitous, like blackberry jam glaze on top of a like this or that. 
The food there was just infinitely simple. There's also sick bread and butter situation, and I feel very good about the bread that everyone is baking here across the country. But if people want to pay even more attention to butter, I'll be happy about that. Can I can I get two dairy, next decade dairy butter or plant based butter? Dairy butter. Okay. Although, mind you, the plant-based cheese and dairy situation has gotten much better. It's a very, very good time to be vegan, in my opinion. Matt, do you concur? I, I do concur. Yay. Yeah. I cut you off. You were about to say. Oh, I've got, I've got two. I've got a short one and a long one. Okay. Short one is Geneva. It's going to take over the U.S. And nice. Not, maybe not take over, but it'll be like a thing that people can pronounce. And two... Vending machines yes. mm-hmm. on the rise yes. in the next decade for sure because of wages Everything. of people working in the restaurant industry and a desire for better product, but an inability to pay more for the product. You're going to, and also just like familiarity and a feeling of comfort with automation. It's going to, they're coming. Well, Kate did a great story about a meat vending mm-hmm. machine. Was it last year? I think it was last year, yeah. Great, great story. Um, it's it's wacky. It is a meat vending machine at a butcher shop outside the city, and they have, like, you can get steaks at a vending machine, which They're, is crazy. Well, the thing is, I think it's a little bit situational, but I agree with you, Matt. Like, I think, I think they've gone from curiosity, you know, a ridiculous, like, look at me, get my, get my cupcake from the vending machine, like, you know, Instagram. And to being something that's really useful, like in Chicago, there's a company called Farmer's Fridge that is that has machines now, certainly like all over O'Hare Airport, but also I think in universities and stuff. And I watched a line form at, at a gate at O'Hare Airport for people to get these salads, which are actually very, very fresh and look, I've tasted them and the one that I tasted I thought was really good and I think it's like, I think it can be helpful, it's certainly convenient but then on the flip side of that there's, you know, the kind of thing like I think the steak, the meat vending machine that was out in the Catskills, I think, they were talking about setting up in New York but they were going to need like armed security so people wouldn't break into them, (laughs) so some of it might be (laughs) self-defeating. We did have earlier this year uh, an episode with uh, the woman who had the jar cafe Anacoli in mm-hmm. the West Village, who now has a vending machine company called Fresh Bowls, mm-hmm. where it's basically salad in a jar in a vending machine. Same idea. It sounds like as the farmer's fridge. You go, you get a fresh made salad. It's refrigerated. And then you can bring the jar back and res- return it to the machine and then get a discount on your next salad. So it's not just convenience but then also she's very into zero waste and reusing that's awesome so they piloted the um, vending machines at we work spaces and universities and hospitals and things like that where people have just totally different you know life work hours you know also in that in that thing of convenience i think we're going to see more it's the it's the opposite of the personalization we talked about a couple minutes ago but there, I think the kiosk automation thing that you see done really well at places like Shake Shack is going to take over more um, fast food places. I met with um, Bite Kiosk, and there's a couple X units. We've had them on the show. Oh my gosh! Two so, years ago, really? Yep. I think it's really cool. They're working with some cool companies now, like I think by Chloe and Numpang, and so in that way that you know 
if you order something on Amazon and it's like, if you like this, you might like that. Like it, it recommends like the kind of onion rings you might want on the side of your fried chicken sandwich. And I think that is, that is just, you know, in some ways a sign of intelligent life that you can, that you sort of have a slightly personalized, more personalized accessibility in in some ordering although that of course is going to bring us back to personalization <laughs> at different kinds of restaurants yes but you get both it makes so you sense get that both. you, get you both. have it all i went into one of the amazon go shops the other day down oh, in the financial ooh. district where you download the amazon go app you have a barcode it connects to your amazon account and you basically walk into it's a convenience store mm-hmm. in essence and they did have one or two staff people you basically scan in you go through the turnstile, you pick up whatever you want from the shelf, and you leave, and it just charges you for what you took, which how is was crazy. It, what was that experience like? Yeah, how did that feel? That's what I want to know. Mm-hmm. It felt a little futuristic, although what made it not futuristic is that it's just the same convenience store foods that you have. It was like, you know, the pre-made sandwiches, it was all the different drinks, it was you know, microwavable things that we've seen before. So the experience was kind of easy. Just go in and go out and then it all worked as it should have. But I almost wanted the food to be better or something different or the food itself to be more futuristic or at least better, not just, you know, 7-Eleven. Well, on the flip side of that, sort of on the flip side of that, the, some other trends that we're looking at, um, and I think you'll like one of these especially, is we're seeing a lot of um, Eastern European cuisine coming up ap- across the country. Steven Starr has a new restaurant in the new Swedish photograph museum called Veronica that I think is going to lean towards like Vienna and Prague and places like that. And then in San Francisco, Ravi Kapoor, who has um, Liho Liho, has just opened a place called Dear Aloha. Al- yeah, Aloha. Um, called like Dear Elga or Olga or something. But anyway, that goes very towards like Eastern European beer hall, lots of fermented, lots of meat. And I feel excited about that because I love that food. Sort of progressing from Asia back towards the continent, sort of going through Coming that. Coming back to the continent. And then another thing I'm hearing a lot of rumors about, Jen, which I think you'll appreciate, are um, disco bars, the return mm. of the disco bar. Mm. Like I think... I think the kids have heard a lot of house music and they want to hear. It's not like you never hear it's disco, the 90s. but I think it's going to be, it's the 90s. So I think you're going to hear like maybe more offbeat tracks than the 10 that you hear on a daily basis. And they're using like albums as coasters and stuff like that. Maybe even some eco-friendly glitter and some cocktails. Eco-friendly some glitter, sign me up. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I would like to make a bulk order for Harry's Radio Network. <laughs> Let's do it. Eco-friendly glitter. It's probably like almost edible then if it's eco-friendly. It's probably made from like corn. Maybe it is. Exactly. It's just straight unicorn for (laughs) us. Exactly. Uh, What would the the drink be at the disco bar if it's retro? I think. I mean, this is pre-cosmopolitan. I think it's, I think it must be, let's, let's make one up. White wine spritzers? Midori sour. Oh. Hmm. Midori sour. (laughs) Yeah, that came out of nowhere because I don't think I've ever had one. But I just think of like green, you sh- as you should, right? I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I'm thinking back to you know the photos and you know the things that I've seen about Studio 54, which was basically like champagne and yes, <laughs> ordering. We are unfortunately out of time. 
which is always sad because there's always so much more to talk about. We have another 10 years to talk about. Kate, do you have any last thoughts that you want to get out before we close this year and the decade and the show? Either something that made a huge impression on you this past decade or something that you're really hoping for or thinking about? Um, I'm just going to say quickly because I, I'm very, I'm relentlessly eco-minded. Um, I think 2020 is going to be the year of seaweed. I think we already saw a lot of it. And I think to go with all the, with all the like faux meat and the innovations that we're making in packaging and everything, I think people are going to be eating better and cleaner and it's going to be awesome. Okay. That sounds very positive. Sounds also very mm-hmm. Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> Matt, do you have any closing thoughts on the decade, the year? Uh, well, I'll play off that one. I'm going to say, yeah, 20, the 2020s, the decade of umami, where more people understand umami divorced from just, like, meat. Uh, but also, I have an, The decade I, of umami. I have Oof. a... I have a... Well, I, I'm people, getting a t-shirt. Hashtag bumper sticker. <laughs> make that t-shirt. But bumper also, but also an anti-prediction. I think, even though I'm very excited about what, like, for instance, the James Beard Foundation is doing with VR, I think that in 2029, we will be talking about VR and AR, especially as it relates to food, but also in general, basically the same way as we were talking about it now, which is like this fringy, interesting thing that does not impact our daily lives. Hot take. Uh, Side note, the James Beard Foundation uh, AR, VR dinner experience that they have right now was supposed to end on December 29th, and they've extended it to the end of January. We did a show, was it last week, Matt, was the show? Yeah, and because of your show, I'm going tomorrow. It is spectacular. I went and had the experience. It's about an hour long. It's like nothing I've ever experienced before and I've done virtual reality games, which are fun. Yep. Um, I've had a lot of, you know, high-tech, futuristic dining experiences, but I've never had the two together. And that's part of what makes this experience so interesting because you're simultaneously in the virtual reality world, but you're also consuming food and things, but you're perceiving them as they are in the virtual world. So it's not like you see you know, an hors d'oeuvre, you see, yeah. you know, colors and shapes and things like that. And it's really I'm, fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm it was really very fascinating. excited about it. I'm very hyped on it. And I also think that it will be largely irrelevant in the next decade. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the prediction, I, I think we have a lot of technology right now that hasn't quite come together yet. And I think hopefully over the next decade, we'll see these different pieces of technology come together to become more and more functional and more and more environmental. And what I mean by that is we have some smart technology in the kitchen. We have smart technology on our phones. If you could open your refrigerator and it could tell you what food you had in there and then something like a Watson could spit out some recipes that you could cook with all the food that you had, you could bring waste down in your kitchen by using what you had versus starting with a recipe where you go out and you buy a bunch of things and maybe you have leftovers or you open your refrigerator and you stand there for 10 minutes and you have a bunch of disparate items and you're not quite sure what to do with it. If we had technology that helped us sort of inventory the resources we had and then helped us with utilizing all the resources that we have in a functional, delicious way, we would probably need fewer resources and have less waste. Well, I think I think food waste everyone's like so eyes on food waste right now. I think that's a big I 
I think that that's something that you're going to see definitely more innovation on, whether it's things like that, like the smart fridge, which I think we're very close to anyway. Um, it's also just, a, but then like you need people to do it. You know, you need people to be like, okay, now I know how to make this carrot top pesto, but I'm going to order a pizza. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's okay too. That's okay too. Right. That's what, that's what makes it interesting for sure. We do have so much technology. It's going to be interesting to see how it develops and then how it comes together and which things stay with us and which things don't. But one thing that we're sure will stay with us is Heritage Radio Network. Tech Bytes will be back in January. Tune back in. We will figure out what day the episode 200 will be. Maybe Kate will have you back. We haven't Ooh. figured out what that's going to be, but I'm, I'm feeling like we need RSVP, a party and we need, yes. that, we need that cork pop sound. I know. We'll Maybe be. disco bar. Maybe we'll do the disco bar show. We'll get, yeah, everyone will just have to believe that we've got the edible glitter glowing in the glowing in our martini glasses. <laughs> CBD glitter. No, stop it. I want to thank Kate Crater, the food editor of Bloomberg Pursuits, for coming out and closing out the decade with us. Again, you can find her online at Bloomberg Pursuits and on social media at Kate Crater or at Bloomberg Pursuits. You can find Tech Bytes on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Simplecast, all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Tech Bytes lives at the Heritage Radio Network. We are two repurposed shipping containers at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We are also online at heritageradionetwork.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We are completely member-supported. Make it a resolution to... Give back next year and maybe start with us. And cue the popping champagne. Exactly. I'm Jennifer Leitze. This is Tech Bites. Thank you for listening and best wishes for a delicious new year and decade to all. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Hi, Thanks for I'm listening. Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my all-in-the-industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. 
Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.